Welcome to Restoration Dialogues, where ideas and the felt experience of being human come together to support personal and collective healing, the restoration of ourselves and our society, with your hosts, John Earhart and Scott Brown. All right, hello, welcome to Restoration Dialogues. This is John Earhart and I'm here with Scott Brown. We're here to talk about your book, Scott for which you are uh, about to embark on a four-month book tour and starting in two days. So how how does that feel? It's a little surreal, to tell you the truth. Kind of crazy, exciting. Feels like a big adventure, a rite of passage. It's it's a lot. And uh, I feel really blessed to be able to do this. Feels like a once in a lifetime opportunity, and I knew I needed to get out on the road, and so I, I'm doing it. I made it happen, and there's still a lot to do. There's a lot of holes in the itinerary, but uh, it's going to take me through the western states, but also along the Gulf Coast, and on up to Washington D.C., and I'll also spend a little time in Nova Scotia where I used to live, and um, I'll be in D.C. for a week right after the election. Mm. I made a point to not be there for the election. A little, right. little jaunt over to Nova Scotia will uh, kind of <laughs> fix that. Mm. So uh, I'll be there for the aftermath and um, be there for a week and then head home and hopefully do some more events here locally in Boulder and Denver. That sounds like a fun-filled four months, it's, and it's so exciting. I feel really excited for you and relieved that I'm not having to do it. So this has been, this book, Active Peace, which I'm now holding in my hand. Uh, yeah, and, finally. Yes. <laughs> it's Active Peace, A Mindful Path to, not, to a Nonviolent World. A Mindful Path to a Nonviolent World. It's a great title. I love the title. I know that you, you uh, struggled over it for quite a while. And, and I think you just you landed right on the perfect thing. And, so, and this active piece. It's just so concise. These two words are so great. And so I'm wondering kind of what, what does that mean to you, active piece? Well, it really evokes for me the, the idea of practice. There's this theme throughout the book of restorative practices, which we've talked a lot about, restoration and restorative practices on on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And so that really is the active part of active, the active peace and active peace is that idea that our it's a healing context that we're all wounded by the belief in separateness, that that's a deep wound, that that's a worldview, and it's not out there, it's everywhere, and it's in us too. And so to heal that, to create a life-affirming society, to create more peace and ease and compassion and love in our own lives, I think it takes practice. It certainly has for me. There may be some exceptions out there but so I keep coming back to that theme 
and it's it's humbling and it's enlivening and it's engaging and it works you know 25 years ago i was as stuck in the belief in separateness as anybody mm-hmm. angry and had a victim mentality and took everything personally and it it is the four areas of practice that i outline in the book that have made such a huge difference in my life and i knew i just had to i had to present it and find a way to integrate those and distill those and so it took five and a half years to write the book and find a publisher and rewrite the book or do major editing but now it's done and and i still believe in those four areas of practice Healing the relationship to self through mindfulness practices, calming the mind. Healing the relationship to nature through nature-based practices. Feeling our inter-being with with nature. And through just those two areas of practice, really beginning to get a sense of groundedness, get a real resilience healing those those two areas alone are incredibly healing mm-hmm. the self-awareness the self-acceptance the knowing that the earth is always there supporting us with every breath and then taking that into the third area which is the interpersonal um, and i write about interpersonal skills and tools and healing the relationship to others through those specific skills and tools, and then ultimately taking that into the world through what I call restorative activism, mm-hmm. an approach to social change and activism that's not grounded in us versus them thinking, mm-hmm. but prioritizes relationships right. and prioritizes consistent nonviolence. And there's another practice, practicing being kind in that arena, mm-hmm. which is you know, arguably the most challenging because as activists we we feel how much is at stake yeah. how much is on the line yeah, because activists are animals too and so they respond with instinct don't we all? yeah, if we could just turn that off <laughs> yes. you know, we'd have a much more nonviolent world already yeah and being with that instinctual, animalistic ancient aspect of our nature is an important part of this path as well, right? Well, that reminds me of the importance of just being honest. Mm-hmm. Being honest with where we're at. What emotion is up right now in the moment. Owning the habitual responses. Coming to know what triggers us. Accepting our habits and our behavior, you know, our habitual responses our wounds not that we stay stuck there and apathetic but it's it's self-awareness and it's self-acceptance and that is one of the early things I talk about in the book because it's a gateway vulnerability Mm -hmm. is a gateway to maturation that's awesome and and what I really love about you coming right out of the gate here and really talking about the positive aspect of 
this of this vision of that of nonviolence of practices that that um, cut through this belief in separateness, which we're going to talk about, and it's really what's energizing you and this whole thing. And the the the, the title itself is very positive, um, and. And and you've taken some flack, you know, along the way for for pointing out the kind of the disease in the state of the world and the the problems that actually create the need for for this for this path. So I want to I want to ask you a little bit about that. Uh, and we've referred to this belief in separateness probably now like seven times in our conversation already. So I want to ask Good. you about it bears repeating right even yeah. that's right even though it's even though it's been in the midst of a positive message and so I want to talk about that what is belief in separateness and what do we do about it so I know from my own experience that I have this belief that I'm separate from other people from nature, from God and spirit, and that there's there's even all of these threads of separateness just within my own self, you know, mind separate from body, and um, just layers and layers of it. And so I asked the question for 25 years, including 15 of those years as a professional activist. Why? Why are we doing all this violence to our life support system? I was mainly focused on on the earth for a lot of those years. But also to each other. And I never got a good answer. 15 years as an activist asking that question never got a good answer. Finally, a few, let's see, well, eight years ago, while I was at Naropa in the eco-psychology program, it really dawned on me that the belief in separateness is the root cause of not only our collective crisis, but also so much of our personal suffering. And I could relate to that from my own experience, even as a nature guy who has spent lots of time in the wilderness loving every moment of it, loving the animals and the plants and the rivers, but still at the core, there's a, there's a separateness. I would be out in the wilderness celebrating being alone, <laughs> right? Yeah. Alone, despite all of these other beings that are there with me, but alone because there weren't any other people around. So, you know, that's a, that's a shallow connection to nature. As beautiful as it was, there's so much room to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And I don't think I'm alone in that. So that's, that's what I mean by the belief in separateness, is this worldview that we can trace. And I do it in the book. It, just, it felt important to make an attempt to kind of trace it trace its origins. So I write just a little bit about the shift from hunting and gathering to agriculture and how the earliest seeds of separation 
may very well have been planted with that. Right, with dominion over nature. Dominion over, just that domestication sets up a situation where there's good and bad. Good plants, the ones we can eat, Mm. bad plants, the weeds, good and bad, other, Mm -hmm. otherness. And then I talk about the importance of certain Christian beliefs in separation because we're, we're, we're steeped in that ethic. And even as someone who didn't grow up in the church, I know, I can feel that I have been influenced right. by those beliefs. Yeah. You know, God up there. Because it's cultural in many ways. Yeah, God up there, devil down there, mm-hmm. you know, separate. Men from women, Christians from non-Christians, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And... And then the third thing I, I talk about is the scientific revolution, which, which kind of carved it in stone a little bit, this idea of the mind being separate from the body and the mind, you know, only what we can measure and see as having value. So there's all kinds of separation in that worldview. And that is... You know, all of those things come together to form the worldview that we're all steeped in. And you just, you you can't deny it. Um, And so it takes practice and healing to come to a place where we can really reconnect with our, what I call, interbeing. You know, our deep, deep, deep interrelatedness with all that is. Yeah, again, I'm, I'm loving how the recognition of this path to violence that we've experienced is still somehow releases a deep sense of connection and coming back to interbeing, coming back to this felt sense of connectedness with all things. I think for most people, I know, and I know that your, your book has an, a big audience among people who are on a spiritual path and people who are who are in the process of trying to to solve this problem for themselves and so i'm i'm wondering since there i think there's a lot of people that might look at this idea of this question of separateness this question of of interbeing as something you know foreign really not accessible in any way so so i'm curious if there's if you see What's the way that this become that this this cure? I'm calling it a cure. Is accessible to uh, to a wider audience, and maybe what's the the way of describing it that uh, that makes it more accessible? Mm. Well, it's a great question. I would start by saying that I. I think a lot of people, probably anybody who's going to be any, have any interest in the book, has had some kind of spiritual experience. You know, some sense that there's something bigger than themselves out there. That's, a, that's the starting point, mm-hmm. I think. And, you know, with that comes a curiosity comes a longing to know more about who 
we really are. And I think, I mean, not everybody, probably, but I think that's, that's where the path can really start for a lot of people. Another very related theme is the way that so many people experience a kind of oneness when they're out in nature. Mm-hmm. You know, this really felt sense that of a felt sense of relaxation, mm-hmm. of basic okayness. Right. And it brings to my mind this idea of paradox, which features so prominently in the book, that that we really are inherently whole and okay just as we are. Right. And there's also often a sense of wanting to be more loving and compassionate and open-hearted and so wanting to be something other than what we are. Yeah. Right, we have yeah. this fundamental belief yeah. that we're not good enough. Yeah, and so and that's that feeds the fire of transformation as as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people they they start out in a divorce or a death in the family or you know, you hit a low point, you have a dark night of the soul and that's where the transformational journey really starts. Yeah, so, paradoxically, because paradoxically, because it's, it's it's in trying to be better that we're actually we're actually defying the the, the thing that will make us feel better, which is not trying to feel better mm-hmm. <laughs> or yeah. be better. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things is, and this is the this is the the piece. Like, so you've you've created something here that's transformative that's potentially transformative for anybody who wanders into it because the way that you describe belief in separateness in this book is you know this is a a theme that's been talked about in one way or another in many different ways but the way that you describe it you lay it out in a fundamental way that that seems so accessible so the way you lay it out seems so straightforward to me it's like and understandable and profound that it seems like it's a great place for people to land and it really explains very clearly what the problem is and it's this problem that you and I are as steeped in as anybody else so and here's part of your paradox which is that the underlying truth of this this idea that interbeing, that we are not separate from everything, right? So we have this belief that we're separate from everything, but there's this underlying truth, and it's accessible to everyone. And then at the same time, even for those who have broken and cut through this belief in separateness and had real, real, real profound realizations of this interbeing that you talk about and of this um, non-dual experience, these peak experiences that, that expose the truth of our being to us, we're still steeped in this belief in separateness. And it's, it's, a, it's a fundamental part of the way that our mind works and wakes up every day. The other term that you refer to a lot is worldview. 
And so I wanted to talk about how worldview plays into this. How is the worldview contributing to this predicament? Well, I try to explain worldview in a way that's, that's pretty accessible and simple. So I talk about it as the largely unconscious beliefs and assumptions that guide our day-to-day -day lives and the creation of these systems that we live in, the educational system and the legal system, all of that has its origins in a set of beliefs about, about the world and what's valued and what's not valued. And largely unconscious because we're so steeped in it. We're just so steeped in it. And it's, it's insidious. We can tell ourselves all day long, every day, that oneness is really the great reality. But until we really have a felt experience of that deeply and consistently, that replaces the old recordings, you know, the old beliefs and assumptions, we're still going to be, you know, we're still going to be operating from those, that deeper, more subtle, truer, in a way, uh, belief in separateness. We're, we're just, it's such a deep wound. I keep saying it. Yeah. And we know how influential the Western mindset is in the world with global capitalism and all of the stuff and you know so many people in other countries aspiring to having the stuff the ease the comfort completely unsustainable and yet you know that's the that's the prize that so many people are chasing mm, yeah and this idea john that we can address the predicament in a real way without addressing the underlying thinking and beliefs mm. is really the point that I try to make in the book that we're not going to change systems until we change the underlying thinking that created those systems and us versus them thinking is is very much a part of of that worldview based on separateness and so practicing kindness and practicing nonviolence, even in the toughest of circumstances is the path in a way you know yeah. is a, a core restorative practice right and it takes practice it takes practice yes and so so that's great and that so that leads me to um to, i want to dive a little deeper into what you're calling the four foundations right now. And this is, I think, part of this. It's And rather than referring it to it as a problem, it's a predicament or a wound. And there's there's a healing path to, to treating the, the wound, the woundedness. So can you speak about these four foundations? Yeah, well, the first step, as we know from our the training that we've shared and I, I'll, I put it right in the book is intention right mm. this intention to live from a place of 
let's put it in the context of, of society and social change, to live in a way that actually contributes towards a life-affirming world, a more just and peaceful and environmentally sane world. That's a powerful intention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And knowing that that, that, that really starts with, with ourselves, we can turn our attention there that I, I am going to attend to my own healing. And it's not linear. I don't have to be enlightened before I can engage in activism or social change or interpersonal relationships. It doesn't work that way. Right. It's not a linear process. But right. if we don't attend to the inner disarmament... We're not going to get to outer disarmament. So the first step isn't really a step at all. It's uh, it's uh, to stop moving, and to look look in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The being. Uh-huh. The being. Right. As opposed to the doing. And there again, um, there's no separation between those two things: being and doing. Mm. But there's there's a different energy attached, and. Mindfulness is so much the first, the first foundation because we can get smacked in the face 10,000 times a day by the truth of interbeing and interrelatedness. But if we're not paying attention, we're not going to notice it. And we are smacked in the face 10,000 times a day by that because that's the truth. But if we're so busy and caught up in our lives, our thoughts, we're not going to notice it. So really, all of the work presented in the book boils down to paying attention. Mindfulness is, is the thread that, that weaves it all together. And, and so here's, here's a way to talk about the four, the four foundation areas. Again, in this context of social change. There's... there's more people and groups than ever that are involved in beautiful acts of, of restoration and healing, right? Mm-hmm. And so I believe that this foundation of mindfulness is a litmus test on all of that activism. If it isn't attending to the mind and calming the mind and stilling the mind, helping people become more spacious, more self-aware, more self-accepting. Um, it's, not, it's not nearly as restorative as it could be. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. Because I believe that if we don't... Thich Nhat Hanh said something to the effect that if humanity doesn't learn to slow down it won't survive. Mm. So there's my bottom line Mm -hmm. with mindfulness. Same with the nature-based practices, the second foundation area. Mm -hmm. If we do not heal the human nature split, it doesn't matter what else happens out there in the world, we're not going to survive. Third foundation area, interpersonal. If we don't learn to get along better to transform our conflicts into deeper and deeper relationships, more depth, more honesty, we're not going to survive. 
Mm-hmm. And fourth area, restorative activism. Despite all of the effort going into social change right now, more people, more groups than ever, if that activism, if a significant amount of it isn't transformed into an approach to activism that prioritizes relationship, that attends to, cons- to real nonviolence, consistent nonviolence, then we're not going to survive. So I think those four foundations come together. They're, they're, they're very powerful individually, but they also come together in a very powerful way to, to outline a path right. and an approach. And so I, I still feel really good about the package. Yeah. You know, we could argue that there's, there's kind of nothing new in each one individually. I mean, I think I present it in a in a unique way but there's lots of books about mindfulness and right. lots of books about deeper connection to nature and books about interpersonal skills and mm-hmm. books about activism but um you know i have yet to see one that that brings it all together in in yeah. the way that i did it's like a survival toolkit really yeah, I called it, I called it a manifesto yes. for a long time. I mean, there's a lot in there, right? And um, I mean, a lot of people, you know, they fantasize about a zombie apocalypse, but really, <laughs> attending to these things is not going to allow that to happen. <laughs> so, so one of the things that's coming up for me is how the mindfulness practice, the nature how quieting the mind how going in it's like listening it's like a deep listening to a deeper wisdom that resides within us right absolutely and that's out of it's out of that 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 intention naturally comes right so when we when we quiet the mind and the body and the and our desires just even for a short time, and we ask, what is our intention? It's probably not going to be a violent, retributive, resentful message coming coming out. What's important to us? Mm-hmm. We're going to get answers that are along these lines that you're talking about, that are about interconnection, that are about love, that, that inspire uh, appreciation for what we have and and who we're with. Yeah, very much so. And I appreciate so much what you said earlier about finding the book accessible. I know I, I and my publisher worked really hard to, to make it that way. And one of the things that she encouraged me to do early on, because our spiritual essence as human beings is such an important thread that we surround, she said, you need to name that early on. Yeah. And so I did. And it felt really right to say that there's this theme that runs throughout the book. And I want you as the reader to know right up front what it is. And that is this belief. We could call it a belief. We could call it a, I mean, I would call it my own personal knowing mm-hmm. that my nature, our nature as human beings is inherently 
spiritual, that there's this spiritual essence, that we arise from this ground of being, this great mystery from God, from spirit, whatever people want to call it. The name doesn't matter in the least, but it's this, it's this felt sense that there's something greater. And that is fuel for the journey. Right, that, because it's hard yeah. to it's hard to then again to even confront the issue of the belief in separateness without that as as a as a companion. Yeah, it's just an intellectual exercise mm-hmm. without that. Right. And it's important in the activist context because it's that transpersonal awareness, that awareness beyond the personal, beyond the ego that gives us the strength and the courage and the resilience to face the predicament. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King talked about the dangerous unselfishness. And by that he meant, he meant the, the love that flows from, in his case, his relationship to God and spirit. And certainly Gandhi's followers and so many in the civil rights movement the freedom riders you know they could not have possibly had the courage that they had mm. without a spiritual belief and practice and knowing yeah. a deep knowing not an idea yeah. but a real deep felt sense of what's beyond themselves and greater than yeah. themselves um, so one of the other themes of the book is uh, is restorative practices and restorative activism, and I think that you talk about restorative justice as a kind of a foundational influence for you. And so, so, uh, so maybe you could talk about this restorative philosophy and how that helps inform the messages in the book. Yeah. So, just generally this focus on restoration, which literally the word means to make firm again, it it harkens back to this healing context, that we're wounded by the belief in separateness, and so we are engaged, consciously or unconsciously, in a, in a process of healing, of restoration. And this idea of practicing, that that requires practice. Restorative justice is so important in the mix because of those very practical skills and that very practical philosophy. It really gives peacemaking some concrete, concrete tools and a, and a very clear process. So the five R's are worth mentioning. Relationship, prioritizing relationship. And in a justice context, you know, that has a certain, that has a certain meaning. In the book, I put, I put restorative justice in the social change context because I believe that the principles and practices of restorative justice can really be brought to bear on any social justice or environmental justice issue that we could think of. So, That's right. So relationship. In the larger context, just prioritizing interpersonal relationships. Respect. You know, we don't get very far 
in relationship and repairing harm without respect. Responsibility. Self-responsibility and asking for responsibility from those who have caused harm. And then repair is the fourth R of restorative justice, repairing the harm. And then the fifth is reintegration. So once the harm is repaired, reintegrating the people involved, everyone involved, back into the community in a good way without lingering blame and resentment and mm. shame. Yeah. So, yeah, rest of the original title of the book was um, The Path of Restoration. Oh, yeah. And it's no longer the title, but that phrase is still in the book. It had to stay because that, that theme is so important in reminding us of the healing context, that we can't just jump to fixing yeah. without attending to that deeper work. And, you know, there's a lot of books about peacemaking out there and social change. And the thing that I, I continue to feel like so many books and teachers miss is really attending to the deep work right. of restoration. You referred to Martin Luther King earlier, and one of my favorite things that he said was that the ends do not justify the means, the means rather represent the ends. And so when you're talking about activism, the way that we conduct ourselves is just as important as the goal. Mm -hmm. And restorative, it occurs to me as you're speaking about, about the, the five R's that as how restorative justice as a tool, this process, is applied in every, potentially in every component of our work, right? So within groups themselves. So within a group that's working toward a change, there might be harm within that group that could benefit from a restorative justice process, right? Absolutely. That's, that's part of what I'm trying to get at when I say, for example, with that foundation of the interpersonal, if we don't learn to get along better, we're not going to survive. That's partly because it's the interpersonal dynamics that limit and completely take down mm. so many fine organizations right. and so many fine people that want to make a difference. If we're going to go deeply into organizing and advocacy and relating to people that are outside of the boundaries of our organization so we're not just preaching to the choir that's going to take deep interpersonal skill and work and attending to that aspect and so many groups don't they yeah. don't attend to it at all and consequently there's a huge shadow sure in the mix and there's lots of ego struggles absolutely yeah of course right so, so repairing harm is just is a theme. And yes, the peacemaker practices kindness, but the peacemaker also practices transforming conflict and repairing harm. Mm. You know, I'm getting a lot of questions about Donald Trump. You know, what would you do and say if you had lunch with Donald Trump? And 
I've been emphasizing the kindness component of that. The Philo of Alexandria quote that I love so much. Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Donald Trump is obviously fighting a great battle. He's obviously very steeped in separateness. Mm -hmm. And so the kindness is, is revolutionary and radical, as the Dalai Lama talks about. Kindness being the new radicalism, or compassion being the new radicalism. I completely believe it. And at the same time, especially using the principles and practices of restorative justice, grounded in respect and relationship and repairing harm as opposed to punishment and blame, we can hold people accountable for mm -hmm. the harm they caused. Mm -hmm. And I'm totally convinced that, that those principles and practices are going to catch fire someday and be used in a larger social change context outside of the criminal justice system. And, and at that point, there'll be no stopping it. Right. Because, as we know from restorative justice, everyone involved sees and feels and experiences the transformative nature of it. And it's going to be exactly the same in the social change context. In the book, I write about using those principles and practices, the five R's, to address the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, just as an example of how potent they are. That, yeah, they could even address something that catastrophic. You know, people died. Mm -hmm. Ecosystem, you know. Right, and the, and the question becomes where is the accountability, particularly when you're talking about international environmental catastrophes like Fukushima or something yeah. like that, where it's not just affecting one country. And right. so the, the, and we can't just leave the, the uh, responsibility taking up to that country. It's the whole world is impacted in such a strong way by the use of fossil fuels and the promotion of, of the use of fossil fuels all over the world particularly in the Middle East, mm -hmm. and through how, for, how it impacts our foreign policy and everything else. So a good international restorative justice process. Yeah, well, <laughs> everyone wants accountability, right? I mean, that's just a given. And so how do, we, how do we best approach that? Business as usual so doesn't deliver on that. And it also doesn't change the system. One of the things that I... I try to emphasize in the restorative justice sections in the book is this idea that to be restorative, there has to be real systems change to make sure it doesn't happen again. That rarely happens in a business as usual scenario. You know, right. there's, there's not restoration. Victims, as we know, often more than anything, more than punishing the offender, they want to know that what happened to them isn't going to happen to anyone else. Right. So it's a key aspect of a restorative process. And it has to be built right in, up front, to any kind of a, a restorative justice process, even addressing something like BP or Fukushima. Right. And it's a, it's a good faith effort. I mean, you, it's hard to guarantee 
you know, that something's not going to happen again. But there really has to be a good faith effort. Right. And we can individually, in the midst of a system that feels and seems rigged against any kind of change, feel hopeless. And yet, restorative justice, if you follow its path and growth in this country and in the world, it's growing astronomically. The police chief from the city of Longmont was invited to the White House to talk to justice officials, the highest level justice officials, about the work that he's doing putting thousands of kids through this process in his city and making his city a safer place to be where relationships are honored. Yeah, and I imagine taking that mentality and applying it to the larger context. So, coming back to accountability, I argue in the book that, for example, with BP, you know, people from Halliburton, from the, the oil and gas industry, I can imagine that those folks are going to be more likely to come to the table for a process that's not based on shame, blame, and punishment, but on repairing the harm. And I think we may not be there yet, you know, in terms of really setting the context for that. But the key piece is showing respect from the very beginning. Otherwise, people won't come to the table. Right. But if as activists we can really practice consistent nonviolence and respect and prioritizing relationships, we actually set the stage for the greater healing. Right, and if we know, model taking responsibility. Yeah, it can feel really good to launch on people and vent, mm -hmm. but what good does it do? You know, we've been doing that for an awfully long time, and we're not making very much progress. Not on the big things, not on the systems change. So this is really the radical territory of the future, and the invitation is to transform ourselves and our activisms, our activism, and it's everything in the book points to greater and greater maturity. And at the very end of the book, I write about this idea of, can we end all war forever? And I, I don't know, you know, if, if that's possible. But I do know that this intention of creating a more nonviolent world is a logical step in our evolution as human beings. You know? yeah. Being more kind, being more loving embracing our interrelatedness and interbeing, becoming nonviolent, that's, if we are going to survive, you know, that's, that's a big part of the yeah. process. Yeah. The evolutionary process. Absolutely. So that's, you know, that's the context of the book. I mean, it aims high, and it goes deep, and um, everybody gets to walk their own walk and walk their own path. But it is beautiful to know also that we do that together. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great, uh, I think, place to end this. And the, the book is a, is a real triumph. And I'm so happy for you. And if people want to follow you, 
How can they do that? On the website, there's a map of the route with the cities and the dates of when I'm in certain places. And I really invite people to get in touch and to help spread the word. There's, there's a lot to do yet to uh, make this book tour happen in the best possible way. I mentioned earlier there's still some, some gaps, some places where I don't have anything organized yet, but I'm committed to going to all those places that I've mapped out. So that web address is www four number four activepeace.com. Excellent. It's it's fun and I look forward to supporting you from uh, from the home base. Thanks, John. This has been great. Appreciate your support. Yeah. So much. Thank you. Can you do the sign off? Until next time, keep it human. <laughs> <laughs>